how do you live in a world that is imperfect? You know, he makes this vow, I'm never coming down because the world is unjust. Welcome to the Book Society podcast, where we talk to interesting people about interesting books. It's really that simple. Okay, here we go. This week, we're back with Joe Mino. If you heard last week's episode, we talked about his book, The Book of Extraordinary Tragedies, which is awesome and sad and happy and really cool. So go read it. Today, we're talking about Italo Calvino's The Baron in the Trees. I'm familiar with Italo Calvino a little bit. I've been introduced to him through other authors on the podcast. This was the most sort of accessible thing of his that I've read, actually. It is just a straight book, you know, that you can follow from beginning to end. Um, yep. And some of his stuff has been really, is really kind of uh, surreal, surrealist. Yeah. So Calvino, you know, is this interesting writer. He um, grew up in, he was actually born in Cuba hmm. and his parents were uh, botanists. And they were in Cuba from Italy studying the fauna of Cuba. And they took him back to Italy. He grew up in Liguria, which is on the western coast, right near the French border on the Mediterranean in Italy. And like he grew up surrounded by plants and trees because mm. his parents were these horticulturalists. At the beginning of World War II, he was 18 years old at the university, I think, in Turin. And, you know, the fascists took over Italy. And so his parents instructed him to come back to the hometown, grab his little brother, who was a couple years younger. And the two of them went and hid in the woods for the remainder of World War II. They lived with the partisans who were the, you know, Italian kind of people, countrymen who were fighting against the, the fascists. And so this book, it's very fanciful. It feels like kind of a fairy tale. It's set in the, in the early 18th century, but it's really grounded in his own experience uh, growing up in that region and then living out in, in the woods for, I think, three years during World War II. Yeah. It's, um, so just for the listeners who haven't read it, the, the elevator pitch is it's a noble Italian family and the son Let's see. It, it was such a silly thing. The son gets mad at his father for making him eat snails that he was trying to liberate and decides to climb a tree and says that he's never going to come down. And this is when he is a young teenager, 13 or something. 12, 12, 12 years old. And he never comes down from the trees. He never touches the ground again <laughs> until he dies as at a ripe old yes, age. <laughs> I'm climbing this tree and I'm never touching the ground again. And they're like, oh, okay, kid, we'll see you. We'll see you tomorrow at dinner time." And he has such a strong will and a sense of adventure that really the book is his life living and surviving up in these trees in, in Western Italy. And he actually travels beyond Italy at different points in, in the book. All, all swinging from trees though. Manages to get, and he, I mean, he fights pirates. He falls in love. He is somehow involved in the French revolution. You know, he, he, he lives a full life, but without ever touching the ground. And <laughs> that's a never, metaphor for something, I'm sure. Well, like I said earlier, I love characters who have an impossible goal, hmm. you know, or an impossible want. You know, this kid, Alex, in, in the book that I wrote, Book of Extraordinary Tragedies, he's in love with music. But he can't ever quite be part of music in the way that he was because of his hearing loss. The narrator of this book, 
is actually the the brother of the main character, but the main character, his name is uh, Cosimo. And at the age of 12, he, he kind of makes this rash decision. He's like, I'm climbing this tree. I'm never coming down. But he has this like resoluteness to never come down again. And so it's about him surviving, coming up with all these ways, meeting people, like you said, falling in love, having relationships, seeing the shift in um, Europe from kind of feudal aristocratic regimes you know at the time italy was not a country it was a bunch of kingdoms and so and that not just in italy but throughout france germany all, all that you know that kind of area and so he also sees that shift from the kind of aristocratic monarchies to the beginning of different democracies in that region as well um, but it's a coming of age book that even though there are these fantastic elements and the idea of staying up in a tree for your entire lifetime seems like preposterous. I think it's like based in this idea of like, how do you live in a world that is imperfect? You know, he makes this, this kind of vow. I'm never coming down because the world is unjust. You know, when he's a kid, his parents make him eat these snails. He doesn't want to eat the snails. And he sees this as this kind of great injustice and that sense of injustice fuels a lot of his adventures throughout the rest of the book. He teaches, he like teaches this thief how to read and he's like distributing these like pamphlets, these leaflets to the um, workers in the vineyards to get them to kind of unionize. And, and so, yeah, it's really about that, like those vows that you kind of create for yourself in your youth, you know, like. Maybe you went through like a hardcore vegan phase or like in the 80s, like the kids I knew were like straight edge, like the punk kids. If you were straight edge, it meant you didn't smoke, you didn't drink. And even some of them, it meant they didn't have sex, which always seemed really interesting to me that you were like choosing that. It seemed more of a defensive measure. You're like, it's not that anyone was interested in having sex, but I might as well just say this is my choice. Um, yeah, it's like I didn't, I didn't ask anyone to go to the dance. So I'm um, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought it was like brilliant because it made it seem like a political, like, I know this is who I am straight edge. And then like, well, okay, that's fine when you're 20, but like when you're 25 or 30 or 40, like, what does it mean to try and maintain that same identity or to maintain the vows that you made as, as a child, hmm. you know? And I, and I think that's one of the struggles that Calvino he grew up in this partisan movement. He was 18 when he was forced to flee the university and go out in the woods. And he met these people who were like bakers and teachers and they weren't soldiers. They were just everyday country people. And they became these soldiers. And a lot of them were members of the communist party in Italy. And they actually beat, you know, the, the fascists, the allies came in and they supported the allies. They worked together to get rid of the fascist Italians and, and the Germans in, in the country. And then after that, Calvino was part of the communist party. And he was really at odds with these other members of the communist party because, you know, they had a much stricter view of what it meant to be a communist. And he had a much more kind of liberal idea that, it should change and you shouldn't disinclude people from the conversation and this kind of infighting among these people. 
And like growing up in the punk community, I saw the same thing like over, you know, in the 90s, the worst thing you could be called was like a sellout. And if you recorded a record on a small indie label and someone then offered you a contract to record on a a corporate commercial label, then suddenly you would be accused of, of being a sellout and not true to like independent or punk rock ideals. And this happened like over and over again um, and not just in punk culture but in other arts cultures as well and I, I just think it's such a fascinating question like do you maintain the same beliefs you had as a child and if you do like what does that say about your ability to change you know like do you have the same belief structure when you were 12 as you do when you're 45 and is that something you should be priding yourself on or is that something you really want or do you want to be able to change and develop and even contradict yourself and say like well i used to believe this and now i believe this so it's a great kind of examination of that this is one of the problems i had with the book is that the the character i mean i think this is the point of the book but the the ability to change is i think what intelligence is you know you're if you know everything when you're 12 that's beautiful I mean, you don't know everything when you're 12. If you think you know everything when you're, uh, I think when you're, when you're that age, you do think you know everything, but that's because the things that you don't know are so far beyond your grasp that you wouldn't understand them if someone explained them to you. And this is one of the things I think about a lot when I'm, when I'm talking to young composers is there's, there's sometimes this gulf between what they know and what they need to know that is so wide that there's almost nothing I can say. You know, I can just right. say, just go read this book or go do this yeah. thing or go work at this place and then come back and ask me questions about that because I, I don't really, nothing I'm going to say to you will make any sense. And I, I think that's, uh, that's part of like, part of what I wanted to say to this character was like, you know, you're going to have a different life if you just come down from the tree, but, um, yeah. but I think yeah. that's, that's definitely the question is one of the reasons. So the book's set up in this interesting way. It's told in first person, which Mm -hmm. means there's a narrator. Someone's telling the story. But unlike most coming-of-age books, my book's this character, Alex, he's telling the story. Mm -hmm. But in Bearing the Trees, the narrator's actually Cosimo's brother, his younger brother, Biagio, who's like kind of documenting his older brother's adventures and compiling these stories from people that he met. He's trying to like kind of put together his brother's life story. And it's a really strange kind of unconventional arrangement where like a narrator is narrating the life of someone other than themselves. You know, he's narrating his brother's life, but it's a really critical one because that distance and having this narrator points out some of those flaws or challenges. The fact that this guy really for his entire life, maintains or kind of holds so fast to those beliefs that all these things like literally the town's changing the whole you know region is changing and this guy still refuses to to change and the opportunity to grow and fall in love like those things kind of pass by as well and it's not to say he's not intelligent or he's not learning and he's not taking part in life but that idea that you kind of hold so tightly to this one belief and carry it with you through your whole life it's seen more as this as instead of it being this conviction that's really valuable it's really seen more as a curse because it keeps him separate from the lives of the other characters i think we venerate those people though because they you know i think there's a part of i'll just speak in the first person but there's a part of me that the person that i wanted to be when i was 20 i think i admire someone who can stick to that Yes. Even if it's stupid, 
you know? And, yeah, 100%. you know, like, I want to believe that when I was 20, I was a genius and I was right about everything and that I could have stuck to that. And seeing someone who does that, like someone like a monk or someone who just right. renounces their life and takes on a life of austerity in the name of some principle seems so romantic, but it's, it's also, I, I, don't, I don't really know if it really accomplished. I mean, I think you can accomplish more by not doing that, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, or, and that's really, that's it, Luke. It's like, to yeah. me, that's the question. That's like the fundamental question of the book. Mm-hmm. Like, do you accomplish more by holding to these abstract beliefs, political principles? Do you accomplish more by refusing to change, refusing to bend, or by like taking part in the life around you and having to compromise? I mean, literally, I don't want to go down this road, but like, that's the political dilemma of the you know second half of the 20th century and the 21st century is like do you accomplish more by not getting everything you want by being forced to compromise and get two out of four things instead of zero out of four things or is it better to like hold fast and refuse to bend refuse to change try to pull things backwards like what you know and so i have pretty strong beliefs one way or the other like i don't think i actually think it takes depth and complexity and maturity to try and find compromise or say like oh this is what i thought it was going to be but it's actually this and so we're going to have to adapt and i love that idea that intelligence i really do think it takes a lot of intelligence to be able to be adaptable i don't i do hear what you're saying like you know you think of like a musician who spent hours and years like learning how to play their instrument or like an Olympic athlete who's dedicated 10,000 hours to their sport. And there's like something so um, just incredibly like uh, inspiring about that. But then there's also something like, but then what? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like after you won the gold medal or after you've performed this amazing virtuistic piece, like, like what's the rest of your life about, you know, like you've dedicated yourself to this one thing, but what is the rest of life? And that's really the the question I think Calvino's trying to get us to to grapple with is like that's that's amazing and you know we should kind of be inspired by it but we also see like what's the cost or consequence or what's the what's complex about about that thing yeah and I, and I think it, it it really in an odd way speaks to some of the the challenges that as we grow older you're like yeah I'm not the person I was 20 years I can't believe some of the things like I'm arguing on behalf of, or, you know, in an interesting way. And it's like, oh, maybe that, that willingness to change my mind about things or contradict myself shows ability to keep growing or at least wanting to keep learning to grow. Yeah, I I agree with you completely. And I think that the book, uh, let's see, I want to answer some of the questions that you raised. So first of all, Yes, it is better to compromise and get two out of four things than zero out of four things. Because if you get two out of four things th- three times, then you've gotten six things. So, yeah, agree. Yeah, so it's um, it's it, it is better, and you know, having done a little bit of work in politics, that just is how it works. And you can try to burn the system down, but you're going to still end up with a political system at the end of the day, and yeah, exactly. it's going to be based on compromise or it's going to be an autocracy. So, yeah, um, yeah. So those, those are your options. Um, I'll take right. And the uh, the the book answers the question I think of is it better or more meaningful to live 
what I guess we're describing as a normal life of compromise and learning and growing and uh, fungibility. Yeah. Um, and it answers that question because you know, whose story are we reading? We're reading the right. story of the, of the austere monk who refused to come down from the trees that is written by his brother who went on to run the estate and do all the things that men do who may be eminent in their time, but are ultimately anonymous. We know next to nothing about him other than how he yeah. relates to his brother. Um, right. And I think that like part of when I read literature like this, I don't know if I like the veneration of that kind of ideal so much. It just, it seems very inhuman, mm. you know, like it seems like, like, and I, I'm so glad that you told me that Calvino was born in Cuba because one of the things that I've thought as I've come to read his book is that he, he just reminds me a lot of Bodhis and they were oh yes, contemporaries, yeah. well, but exactly. Definitely took yeah. inspiration. Mm. You know, Boris was, was writing in the, in the late thirties and forties. Calvino started publishing in the late 50s. But those, you know, a lot of folks see Jorge Luis Borges as kind of the progenitor of postmodernism, right? Even though it came before World War II, some of the questions he was asking, some of the breaking of rules of, of narrative that he was uh, employing, those were all picked up by writers like Calvino and Thomas Pynchon and Kurt Vonnegut, who really toyed, you know, all these writers were toying with our expectations for what a book can do or should do. And um, even though this book, like you said, is it's really accessible, it's still based around these folk tales. It has this very, like, each chapter is almost like its own little story about a character that um, Cosimo meets on his travels. So it has this um, very folkloric structure, but it's asking really contemporary questions about politics and meaning. So he's using like this old form, really familiar form, but inserting these like really salient, really relevant questions in it. And like, to be totally honest, like it's, it's a book that I've read and, and used in classes. My daughter's like 15, read it a couple months ago. It, it, there's something about it that feels really um, compelling and engaging and fanciful, but also asks these really interesting questions. But it was a book that like, there's the spirit of it, of a character who's like constantly moving from one place to the other, meeting one character. And that was something in the Book of Extraordinary Tragedies that I was really interested in trying to borrow or, or copy that feeling of like, here's a character figuring out his relationship to the world. And he does it by going from one place to the other, to the other and sense of movement, like physical movement from place to place and character to character was something I was interested in, in trying to emulate as well. That was, I think why I thought it was Dickensian was that it's just this picture of this sort of underground world that you know exists, but you never really get to meet these characters outside of caricatures of themselves. And, right. and I love that the, you know, the villain, the guy who runs around stealing architecture is his dad. And we, you know, we really get to learn about him. And the other thing that I, so this is, you're, you're the old, you're the second person on the podcast who has written a book that I liked and I couldn't articulate why until I had them on. And the first one was Jane Smiley. And the book that we read of hers was, uh, Perestroika in Paris. And as we're just discussing it, I realized, I think the thing I loved about it was that there's really no antagonist. It's just 
kind of stuff that happens to this character that you yeah, like and interesting exactly, things that they yeah. do. Um, One, and, and that's really, you know, like if you look at the Baron in the trees, there's not a villain, right? Yeah. It's this kid who makes this kind of ridiculous vow. I'm going to stay up in the trees. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, kid, like, let's see. How, how do you survive? How do you make sense of this? How do you develop relationships? How do you learn about, like, he kind of stops going to school. Mm-hmm. And so he's got to learn on his own. And he starts getting these books and kind of learning about politics and philosophy and and that idea that there's not this like clear bad guy antagonist villain like mm. that feels really familiar like there are people i don't maybe get along with in, in my life or that it's difficult uh a fraught relationship but I, you know you don't usually have like someone who's like breaking the door down and you have a sword fight <laughs> and, and so that like you know that's that's structurally really similar to what calvino employs where it's really more about it's really the difficulty of like being in a relationship with other people. Like that's Mm -hmm. really the conflict that Cosimo, like how can you maintain relationships with other people while also maintaining this vow that you made? And so Alex in, in, in my book, book of extraordinary tragedies, like he is so in love with music. He's got this problem. He's like trying to maintain these relationships with people who aren't quite ready to save themselves. He's like, if I only am the one to save these people, they'll be great. And he has to turn over that sense of control. But the problem of the book is him in relationships with other human beings and it's people he loves, people who drive him crazy sometimes. But it's not like there's an asteroid from outer space or a bad guy, you know, there's not a murderer in town that's like creating the conflict. It's really like, how do you love people who do these things you wish they wouldn't do? Like, how do you live with these people? You know, how do you save someone who refuses to save themselves? And the answer is you can't, right? Like you can't, you have to trust they're going to find their own way. That's really interesting that, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't have enemies, you know, and there's not like a podcast. It's not like a podcast <laughs> war where you talk trash about like another podcast. <laughs> Oh man, that would be fun. But I, but the, yeah, I mean, from a literary perspective, enemies are actually very simple. You either vanquish them or they vanquish you, but a re- you don't win a relationship. You have a relationship. <laughs> Done. You're like, yeah, I got this one. <laughs> yep. I mean, and that's, what's really difficult, right? Like, and that, you know, and that's really familiar. I have three siblings and there's like been times in my life where I'm like close. And then there's other times where we're like challenging each other, driving each other crazy. There's not that kind of static, like thumbs up, thumbs up. And that's the thing. It goes back to this conversation we had about Disney movies where it's like, okay, that's done. That problem is over. Like the bad guy has been destroyed and I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's like, well, what do you do with your sister that you love? Who's maybe not taking care of herself? Or what do you do with your niece who keeps making these kind of self-destructive choices and like (laughs) biting kids in class or like, oh gosh, I love this person. Like, why won't they care for themselves? You know? (laughs) So it's, it's, I, I feel like there's actually more nuance, more complexity in those sort of um, literary relationships because they're drawn from our, our own lives. The person you hate at your office, like, it's so rare they leave they're there and you have to like find a way to like work with them and sometimes it works out and sometimes it's weird you know and so i feel like 
there's actually more drama in, in those kind of relationships than in the ones that are so like one note or so clearly um, defined. I totally agree. Um, I just, as you were talking about those Disney movies, I'm just imagining Snow White and Prince Eric at Thanksgiving dinner with her stepmother and her pusillanimous dad 10 years later. Yes, you know, yeah, but they still have to know each other. That's the film I want to watch. You know <laughs> what I mean? And they have to ask like the stepdad, stepmother for money. And they're like, oh, and you know, it's just like somebody, yeah, somebody has an illness or somebody, you know, made a bad investment or whatever. And you're like, oh, how are we going to, how are we going to deal with this? Like that's to me infinitely more interesting. And even though this book, The Baron in the Trees has these kind of mythical kind of archetypal elements to it, it's still very much a family story, you know? Mm -hmm. Cosimo is the main character, his brother, his younger brother's narrating. And it, you know, even though Cosimo is going around having these adventures, it always circles back to the family. Mm. It always circles back to the consequences of his absence or the relationships that he's developed with his, his family. And that was something, you know, thinking about my book as well, that Alex is this kid, he was going around and as the book goes on, his orbit first like starting on the south side, his whole universe is that neighborhood. And then it gets a little bigger and then it gets a little bigger. And then he's like traveling to different parts in the city, learning more about himself, meeting characters who feel really different from the characters he knew growing up and growing up. And that's really similar to Calvino's book as well. Like the first couple chapters are literally just his like plot of land. And then it's like his neighbor's plot of land and then it's like, okay, the town. And as the book gets bigger, the boundaries of the story get a little wider, a little wider. Mm -hmm. Till the end of the book, it's pretty much all of like Central Europe. It's like parts of Italy and he goes to France and there's like Germany. And then like the Russians show up at the end. And like, that's, just, that's such like a pleasurable feeling because it feels like it resonates with my own experience you know, growing up, coming of age where you're like, I know this one world really well. And then you kind of start exploring and learning a little bit more. And, and that map, your kind of a mad, imaginary map, like increases as, as you develop as a person. Yeah. One hopes, right. That the world gets bigger as you get older. Um, well, yeah. Or yeah. you see like, what are the consequences if you just stay in that one spot, yeah. you know, if you only stay in that one world you feel comfortable with or that one world, you know, or that one world you feel like you can control. So there's one thing you said that, um, you know, the book at its core, there's still sort of a family story there. And I read that totally different than you. I, um, I really? read that. Yeah. Because he stays close to home, but he has to stay close to home because he's living in the trees. He has no means of support, you know, like, and, and what I read that as is that people who embark on these incredible feats of austerity can only do so if their families are rich. You can only, you gotta be like a trust fund kid yeah. to be, so, but I, oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. Well, There's no pauper in the trees. It's gotta be a baron yeah. in the trees. Well, but he's like up there hunting and fishing and he like makes his own clothes and he mm -hmm. makes his own children. So like he doesn't necessarily, it's not like they're giving him money because he really doesn't use money in, in that way, but he definitely depends on their support. Like emotionally, his brother, he's his mother um, and his sister and, and father and uncle, he's depending on their support. 
less so in like a financial way, but also it's like a space, like his hideout, right? Like, mm. you know, where he lives kind of on their property at first. And so there's that kind of status or protection. Or, and there's also the thing of like, he, he's, he's relatively um, safe because people know him in town as the son of the Baron. And so that like gives him, you know, I guess nowadays we call him like a, like a tourist, right? Like he's, he's like pretending to be kind of down and out when at any minute he can make a phone call and get picked up in a limousine. Um, <laughs> that, that there's that. And, and there's probably some truth to that as well. Like when, you know, I was writing for all these different punk magazines, the people who were like the most extreme like the like, let's blow up some mailboxes extreme. Like those people were always the one who came from these very privileged backgrounds. They're the ones who felt like they had the most to prove. And they also had the like strongest safety net, you know? So like when, if you got arrested for some political action or activism, you knew someone was going to be able to bail you out of jail. And so it's really interesting kind of, uh, sense in its paradox that like well it's really easy to occupy that position when you have that support or the privilege from from your your own family i totally agree with that and that is that is kind of a hilarious dichotomy that the biggest punks you knew as a journalist were the ones whose parents ran hedge funds or whatever yeah well it makes it makes (laughs) makes sense sense. you know well and you're always i see with our kids too and we have two kids they're incredible but like, no matter what, at some point, if you're an interesting, intelligent person, you, in order to separate yourself from your parents, you really have to challenge yourself to try something they didn't try or be something they're not, you know? And in some ways, that's really another kind of part of, of the book is that like, Postmo grows up in this family where his dad is like constantly looking at these like family charts to prove their lineage and always trying to uphold this aristocracy and, and the idea that, you know, your importance as a person is inherited through your bloodline. And for all his flaws as a character, Cosmo is this person who doesn't believe that. He really challenges that idea that just because you have wealth or money or just because your father owned this land or your father was an aristocrat, that you have some inherent value different than Hmm. somebody else. And so his relationships with these other people in town kind of challenge that notion. And as he starts learning more about politics and philosophy, the idea that everybody has inherent value or just because you don't have wealth doesn't mean you're not interesting or or intelligent or, or valuable. And I think that's a, yeah, it's a really compelling idea because you could also argue, well, you know, maybe to get to that point of realization, he had to have this like wealthy upbringing that a lot of times, like, you know, the revolutionaries that start these huge movements aren't these people who come from abject poverty or don't have anything to work with. They're oftentimes people who come from the middle class or upper class who've had enough schooling and support to say like, hey, there's a problem in this system here and here's how we're going to tackle it you know so it's a really fascinating aspect of like who who are the people who end up having these social impacts you know you can kind of see like oh well they had a network or they had some support in order to enable that wow well 
I think that's a great place to end. I've already kept you too long. So Joe Mino, let me ask you the question that we asked to end the podcast, which is to recommend, uh, this will be easy for you because you're a professor of creative writing, but uh, to recommend two books to our audience to read. Well, so I think uh, The Baron and the Trees, we were talking, Lucas, about um, some work by postmodern authors. So I'm a huge fan of writers who kind of challenge what a book can be or what a novel can be. So I think because we mentioned earlier, I, I would suggest um, the collected stories of Jorge Luis Borges. He's amazing Argentinian writer. And his stories from like the 1940s seem as like they could be episodes of Black Mirror. I mean, they are mind bending and surreal and strange and question the nature of reality. And some of them are like three, four pages long. And they're yeah, just really lively Another book that I want to recommend is by one of my colleagues from Columbia College, Chicago. Uh, it's a book by the poet uh, David Trindad. And it's a book of these very short, he calls them memory pieces. And they're, they're each about like a paragraph in length. And they're these little prose poems that um, feel so... Uh, compelling and uh, specific and detailed. He grew up in um, Southern California. He's uh, this amazing queer poet. They are just, again, similar to the Borges, like such a great way to take like five minutes, 10 minutes to shift out of whatever your work day is like, or maybe at the end of the day. Um, The book is called Digging to Wonderland by David Trinidad. And they're like these wonderful little paragraph length memory stories that are so full of language and emotion. So I think both of those books are wonderful ways kind of building on some of the things that we were talking about um, through our conversation to use literature as a way to open up these places where we can kind of consider some of the things going on in our lives, step out of reality, make uh, an opportunity for us to you know, consider some of the challenges, even consider being uncomfortable if it means being uncomfortable, and then kind of take what we can from those stories and and move back into our lives. Well, that's a great place to end, Joe. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks so much, Lucas. The Book Society Podcast is brought to you by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and produced by Chris Peters. We do new episodes on Fridays. We have a lot of episodes. You can listen to some back catalog. If you like the show, please give it a review. You can review it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It takes a few seconds. Helps out the show. Helps other people find it. And we really appreciate it. All right. See you next week. I really don't know what to ask you. Um, I... <laughs> Okay, I, done. And thanks for your time, Lucas. I really appreciate it.